there's been someone in each one of our lives that had a big influence, profound influence on us. It's on. And I'll never forget the uh, psychology professor that I had at the University of Baltimore sharing his testimony on the last night of school. It got me started on my Christian journey. And he doesn't even know that that happened. What happened? I tried to uh, contact him many times, and he shared his testimony. <laughs> and uh, I tried to contact him many times and was not able to because he had, that was the last night of class, and he was moving to California. I never saw him again. So uh, he has no idea what I'm doing. He may not even remember my name or even remember that I was even in his class. But that's the, the that's the impact that people have, you know. So, and uh, Jim, that's just a great testimony. Usually, we don't hear about those kinds of things until we preach eternity. Well, we are in the Gospel of John, so if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the Gospel of John, chapter thirteen. That's John chapter thirteen, and we're going to begin at verse thirteen. If you need a Bible, there's one on your table in front of you, so feel free to read that one. And if you can't get a hold of the Bible, just listen carefully. So, we have started uh, the second section of John's Gospel. Chapters 1 through 12 constituted the first section of the Gospel. It tells about Jesus' three and a half year ministry of preaching and demonstrating the gospel through his miracles and exorcisms and so forth. Then in chapter 13, we begin section number 2, and it goes on to chapter 17. All of these five chapters take place in one day. All these events are connected with the Last Supper. <clears throat> it doesn't tell us much about the meal itself, but if you look at verse 4, it says, He rose from the supper, and laid aside his garments, and he took a towel, and he girded himself, and he washes the disciples' feet. This is what happens in the aftermath of the supper. These are still taking place in the same upper room. Okay. And we saw last week in the first 12 verses that Jesus washes the disciples' feet in order to prepare them for persecution and death. In the previous chapter, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointed Jesus' feet. Remember that? And she took her hair and she dried his feet. And he said, she is preparing me for my death. Now, in chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he dries them with a towel. And he's preparing them for their upcoming death. He's going to die for them, for their sins. And then they're going to go out and face a very similar situation. And we see Christians today who are being martyred for their faith. You know, they may not have even understood that this was going to be the outcome when they trusted Christ as their Savior many years ago, but this is the outcome. We need to be prepared. And Jesus is preparing his disciples. So now we're going to pick up at verse 13. And what he does is he challenges the twelve apostles. And look what he says in verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, that's true. For so am I. In other words, that's what I am. I am the teacher, and I am your Lord. And then he says, verse 14, If then 
your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now see that word ought there? That's an old King James Bible. Maybe your Bible says should. But it carries the idea of a moral obligation. Ought speaks of a moral obligation. You are, because I have washed your feet, you now are under an obligation to wash each other's feet. Now, we saw from last week, Jesus was washing their feet in order to prepare them for persecution and death. And he was doing it. That was a symbol of that. Just a symbol. Uh, there's nothing about washing of feet that speaks of death. I mean, but this is how he explained it. He said, I'm doing this, and this is just as Mary prepared me, I'm preparing you for that kind of outcome and that kind of future. And you know something? If I've done it for you, you need to do it for each other. You know, when one of you starts facing persecution and death, don't the others abandon them. You need to be there and support them and prepare each other. You need to prepare each other for death. And then he says, verse 15, For I have given you an example. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now you see that phrase? I've given you an example. That phrase, that sentence right there, is used several times in Greek literature and Roman literature. It's used when, it's used to describe a noble death. A death that maybe a master or a teacher experiences in order to teach the disciples to follow suit. So what he is saying is, I've shown you how to live, and now I'm showing you how to die with dignity. And therefore he says to them at the end of verse 15, that you should do as I have done. So that's what this is all about. Now we begin what's called the three truly, truly sayings. Now I've got a translation that doesn't use the words truly, truly, but maybe you do in verse 16. It would read like this. Truly, truly, I say unto you. Does anybody have a Bible that says truly, truly? Well, you, if you had an old King James, that's what you would have had, wouldn't you? Truly, truly. Okay. So there are three truly, truly statements. So verse 16, mine says, most assuredly, because that's what truly, truly means. In the Greek, it's amen and amen. Amen and amen. Truly, truly. This is something that you can go to the bank on. You know, this is a very true statement. Most assuredly, I say to you, and notice what he does. He gives us a principle here. Here's what he says. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Now this verse right here shows us that foot washing has nothing to do with, with humility. How many times have you heard that the story when Jesus washes people's feet, he is teaching a lesson about humility. Remember that? Yeah. Last week I showed you that's not the case. Washing the feet had to do with preparing them for death, right? So notice this. This verse right here proves that this is not about humility. Did you catch it? Look at it again. Verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If this were about humility, you know how it would read? Truly, truly, I say to you, a master is not greater than his servant. So you'll be knocking the master down a bit. See? Because, here, I'm a master. Well, guess what? 
If it was about humility, we'd say, well, guess what? A master's not, what? Greater than the lowest person down here. But it doesn't say that, does it? It says just the opposite. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, what? A servant is not greater than his master. You see that? Which is very interesting. And so what he's saying is, you know, if the master is willing to die, so must the servant be willing to die. Don't you try to escape death. You know better than your master. This is the outcome for all. Anyone who wants to follow me needs to deny himself, pick up what? His cross. So he can follow me. So the servant's not greater than his master. If the master's going to die, the servant may have to face death. We're in this thing together. And this makes a lot of sense. When you think about the feudal system in England, the king goes to war, and guess what? All of his lords that own these big manors, guess where they go? They go to war because the servant's no greater than the master. And then on the manor, guess what? All the people who work for the Lord, what do they do? All the men there go to war too. <laughs> you see, so the little guy doesn't get out. He's not any better than the master. This is not speaking about humility. This is talking about following the leader. And then look at the end of verse 16. Nor is he who is sent... And that's going to be the disciples. Greater than he who sent him. Jesus is the sender. The disciples are the ones who are sent. We're not called to do less or face less than Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father. The Father sent him to what? To die. And ultimately to die. And guess what? Jesus sends us out as lambs among the what? Among the wolves. You, know, you might as well just expect it. We just happen to be living in a portion of history and in a country where there are freedoms. And rarely do we have to face persecution or death. But it may come, even to this country. And we need to be encouraging each other, strengthening each other, preparing each other for you know, a very difficult future. So Jesus is the sender, and the disciples are sent, and we're not called to do less than Jesus. We represent him. So he calls us, he commissions us to go, regardless of the cost or danger. And we need to prepare for the worst. Now look at verse 17. If you do these things, look at this. Blessed are you if you do them. If you do what things? If you do these things, do what things? I guess it would be, yeah, it would be you know, preparing each other to face persecution and death, you know. And uh, of which the foot washing is just symbolic. And then he adds an addendum. <clears throat> this is very interesting. Look at verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. Now, some of you is, are excluded from what I'm saying. You have any idea who he's excluding? Uh, Judas, because guess what? Judas won't die for anybody. Judas is looking out for number one. So he said, you know, I'm not talking about everybody. I'm adding something here. I'm excluding somebody, not all of you. See verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. And uh, so look what he says at the end of verse 18. But that the scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me, meaning at this last supper, has lifted his heel 
against me. And of course, that's speaking of Judas. Now, uh, Jesus is using language of what was called honor and shame. We're not familiar with honor and shame in America. But in the Middle East, honor and shame are the most important principles that you live by. That's why if you see maybe somebody in Korea, maybe a president of Korea, who uh, does something that's corrupt, guess what? A lot of times they'll just uh, commit suicide. Or they will bow their head down and they will, because they're shamed, they've shamed the nation, they've shamed their people, and they'll resign right there. And you've seen it before, that kind of stuff. That's the honor and shame system. And what Jesus is doing is doing here, he's talking about somebody who is going to shame him. Notice the wording that he uses in verse 18. He says, he'll lift his heel up against me. That's how you dishonor the person. Remember that statue of Saddam Hussein? Remember they got their shoes and they started with their heels starting banging on that? <laughs> That's the honor and shame system. Remember when President Bush was doing a press conference and they somebody threw a shoe at him? <laughs> Yeah. That's how you shame somebody in the Middle East. Remember Khrushchev when he came to the United Nations and he took his shoe, started pounding on the United Nations table and he said, we shall bury you. Remember that? Yes. Why do you think they used their shoe? That's to shame someone. Now here is Jesus. Remember this is all being done in the, in the context of a washing of feet. Here is Jesus having just washed Judas's feet and Judas is now going to take that same foot Symbolically, and just kick Jesus right in the head. Okay, so that's what we have. We have this traitor. So, verse 19 says this. Now I tell you, before it comes, that when it does come to pass, that you might believe that I'm here. I'm letting you know this up front, so that when these things come to pass, number one, when you're persecuted, number two, when you see Judas betray us, me, you'll know that I am the Messiah. I am I'm the one who speaks a divine word. And I'm the one who, through whom God manifests himself. Does that all make sense at this point? Okay, now we come to the second. Truly, truly. Amen, amen. Verse 20. Truly, truly, or most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Okay. So now Jesus is talking about receiving. Remember back in John's Gospel, what was the uh, the big statement? It says, he came unto his own and his own what? Received him not. He says, he who receives me receives him, meaning God who received, who sent me. So if he came to his own, his own received him not, that means they didn't what? Receive God the Father, right? So, this is, uh, so, that's what he's talking about here. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, look at verse 20, whoever I send receives me. Now, Jesus is sending out the apostles. If you receive the apostle and his message that he preaches, then in turn you receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, you receive who? The Father. God the Father. So when I go out and preach at a church, and I preach the gospel, and people reject what I have to say, are they rejecting me? 
No, I mean, I'm just the messenger, right? Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting Jesus and his followers. So Jesus says, guess what? I'm going to send you out to the apostles. If they receive you, they receive me. And they receive me. But if they what? Reject you, they reject me and the Father. And you need to be ready because, you know, there's going to be a lot of rejection going on. And now we have the third truly, truly. And this is sort of an aftermath of the supper. An aftermath of the scene, anyway. Now, Jesus, you're going to get an insight into Jesus' mental state. Okay, his state of mind. Okay, look at verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. He was visibly upset. He was anguished. Uh, you know, whenever you walk in and you see somebody, say, something bothering you today? You look downcast. You can just see it. Visibly upset. He's anguished. Not only is he visibly upset, in verse 21, notice he's vocally upset. And he testified and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Remember, this is the last supper. <laughs> this is where all this is being said. He says, let me tell you, you can, count, you can count on this. One of you is going to betray me. See, Jesus has this, you know, he's, you can see his mental state. He's, he's anguished over this. Well, now you look at the apostles' mental state when they hear this. Look at verse 22. Then the apostles looked at one another, look, perplexed about whom he spoke. You can just see it right now. Just imagine them in that room and they just quizzically look at each other. See Matthew, he looks over. Andrew? Andrew looks over at Philip. <laughs> Philip? He looks over at Judas. Can't be him, he's a treasure. <laughs> See, they're perplexed. They look at each other. That's what it says. They looked at each other. Perplexed. In verse 23, it says this. Now, John adds this, now there was leaning on Jesus' breast or his bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. And this, of course, is a description of the Apostle John who's leaning on Jesus' breast. Now we get the picture of what this Last Supper was like. And I told you last week, they weren't sitting at a table like in Da Vinci's Last Supper. They were what? They were reclining. And there were tables, big couches, actually, about eight feet long. And there would be three people reclining, each one against the other's breast, on this center table. And then there were two tables that went out this way with more reclining, three or four reclining along those two arms. It was like a great big horseshoe. And then they, they were about three feet off the floor. And then there were shorter tables, and they could eat with their right hand, but they would recline on their left elbow. And so Jesus is on this center couch, and he's reclining on his left elbow, and I believe Jesus is in the center section of the center couch, reclining on his elbow, and the Apostle John is reclining on his breast. Now, they're, they're laying out like that, with their robes on, and that's how they're eating. And so... It tells us that the Apostle John is reclining on Jesus' breast. What verse was that? 20 what? 3, okay. Now watch this. 
Simon Peter, therefore, motioned to him, that would be John, and asked who it was of whom Jesus spoke. So, here's John leaning like this on Jesus' breast. And Peter must be on one of these couches along this direction because he catches John's eye. See? John's like this. He looks, and there's Peter. And here's Peter going, Who's he talking about? See? So he wants John to ask Jesus, you know, who he's talking about. And that's what you have happening here. Notice it says he motioned to him in verse 24. Do you see that? Motioned to him. Find out who he's talking about. No one. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, John said to him, Hey, Lord, who's he talking about? Just whispers in Jesus' ear. Who's he talking about? And Jesus answers. Look what he says. Leaning back on Jesus' press, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I... And he's only saying this to John. Probably whispering right now. It's he to whom I... I'm not going to whisper like that. It's he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. So John now has inside information. The guy that Jesus gives a piece of bread to is the one who's going to betray him. Now, some of the Bibles say, it's the one to whom I give the sop. This was a piece of bread. They ate with bread. They didn't have utensils. In Bible times, there were no utensils. They ate with their hands. And then they sopped up what was in the bowl with pieces of bread. And oftentimes at the bottom of the bowl, that's where the goodness was. That's where the delicacies were. That's where the drippings were. You know what I'm talking about? Little wine there mixed in with pieces of uh, maybe charred lamb and all those things. And, and so you would just you, you dip that in there and that was, I mean, that was like gold, you know. And oftentimes, the host, who's hosting the dinner, which would be Jesus, would sop a piece of bread and get those drippings and everything with the best, the best bite in the meal. And he would dip, and then he would usually, then he would give it to the person who was the guest of honor. That was a sign of friendship. Okay? A sign of friendship. Giving to your friend the absolute best bite of your own meal. Now, those of you who can remember Dr. Criswell, if he went out to eat with you, he was never opposed to reaching over to your plate, taking off whatever he wanted. And because he was your friend, now, you know, Dr. Criswell isn't with us anymore. But Drake Patterson is, and he does the same thing. <laughs> And he'll go around the table and take a bite of everybody's food. <laughs> so that's a sign of friendship. It's a sign of intimacy. It's only true when, when it's offered. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say that's true. There, Drake said that's only true when it's offered. Well, you know, he didn't say truly, truly. I said, <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, when I was a kid, I'd sit on the street corner, maybe on the curb, and then my friends would be with me, and we'd be drinking a Coke. I'd say, hey, give me a drink. And I'd get a drink of my friend's Coke, and we would share things right up, right the same box. I would never do that with anybody today. Take a drink out of it. Hey, you want a drink? You know, but that shows you, that's a sign of friendship. So that's what Jesus says in verse 26. He said, it's whoever I, and he's only telling this to John. Now watch this. And having dipped, this is the end of verse 26, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, which means that Judas, here's John, leaning on Jesus' breath, here's Jesus, and that means Judas is right here. That is the seat of honor at a banquet. And Jesus is leaning on Judas' breast, dips it, and gives him that bite. That means when it was time for the Last Supper and Jesus assigned the seats, he signed the seat of honor to Judas Iscariot. And he gives him this ultimate sign of friendship. This was love's last appeal. Which, instead of Judas taking it and enjoying it and abandoning all of his plans, decides to go on with his plans to betray Jesus. I don't know what John saw, what John thought when Jesus dipped it, sock, and handed it to Judas. What in the world did John think? He's the only one that has this information. <laughs> it must have been a shock, you know. Because Jesus has just washed Judas' feet. Jesus has just given Judas this piece of bread, you know. And he's going to be betrayed by a friend. And look at verse 27. Now, after the piece of bread, Satan interesting. And this was one of the things I put on Facebook this week as I was preparing this lesson, that Satan was at the Last Supper. Think about that. And he's at a lot of communion services in churches every month. He's there. You just don't recognize him. But Satan is there. And Satan enters Judas Iscariot. And the question I wonder when Satan actually entered the body of Judas Iscariot, did Judas's countenance change? I think he looked different. Could you tell him? Well, it seems to indicate that maybe he didn't. Because look what it says at the end of verse 27. Then you'll see verse 28. At the end of verse 27, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. He says that to Judas. What you do, do quickly. Now in my translation, there are two do's. What you do, that's the first do, do quickly. And in the Greek, the first do is a present tense verb. What you're doing, that's a present tense verb. What you're doing, and then the second do is a command. And it means what you're doing, do it quickly. Now, everybody sitting around the table, what's Judas doing? He's eating, right? So that was what they would be thinking when they say, heard Jesus say, what you're doing, do quickly. They think, well, he's eating, and guess what Jesus is telling him to do? Hurry up and stop it. Get it over with. Finish up your meal. You can see how that would be what they would be thinking. But we know that what, Jesus, what Judas is really doing, what's he doing? Plotting to kill Jesus. And he says, what you're doing, do it. So it's very interesting when you look at it that way. The reason Jesus wants this to happen quickly is because tomorrow at 3 o'clock he must be dead. Because that is the Passover, day of Passover, when the lambs are sacrificed 
And the lambs are sacrificed at 3 o'clock in the temple. He's the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. This plan has to be carried out, and he tells Judas to go and do it quickly. Now look at verse 28. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. They don't get it. See, they're not getting really what's, what's happening right there. They're not sure. It's unsuspecting Judas. They're not suspecting Judas to be the betrayer. John might have some wonders, but not the others. Because, look what it says in verse 29. Some thought because Judas had the money box, it was because Judas had the money box that Jesus said to him, buy those things which we need for the feast. When Jesus said, what you're doing, see, they're thinking Jesus is saying, hey, hurry up and finish eating, because he wanted Judas, who had the money box, see, to buy those things which were needed for the feast. Or that he should give something to the poor. So they're thinking Jesus is telling Judas to hurry up and eat because, number one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a seven-day feast, which is going to take place once Passover starts, the following day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Judas has the money, and they're going to have to be supplies that are bought. So some of the disciples say, he's sending Judas out to buy supplies. Others in that verse think, well, he's sending Judas out to help some poor people. Now, this is very interesting. <clears throat> During this Passover season was a time for great benevolence. Uh, people who had nothing could often count on getting something during the Passover season because people gave to the poor. In fact, the temple gates were left open until 12 midnight every night during Passover because people, out of the generosity of their heart, after evening meal would come and they would find poor people and they would give them things to eat and money to spend. And so the disciples think that Jesus said, hurry up and finish eating so you can go give money to poor people. It's very interesting. In some Christian traditions, uh, during communion service, the people who take communion often put money in a plate for poor people. You know, I grew up in a Methodist church and they would take communion once a month, and people would go up. They don't do it like we do it here, but you go up to an altar, and the pastor would be standing behind the altar, and he would give you the bread, and he would give you the little cup, and you would take it, and you would then put money in a plate, and that was money designated for poor people. It comes right out of the practice of Passover, the Jewish practice of Passover. So that's what the disciples think. They're not suspecting that Judas is going to betray Jesus. They're thinking Jesus is just telling them to hurry up and eat so he can either buy supplies or help support people. And then verse 30 says this, And having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. And it was night. Now literally it was night. There's no doubt about that. But the way John uses light and darkness throughout his gospel, he's letting you know that Judas is going out into the darkness and he has just eaten judgment upon himself. And there's no turning back. Possessed by Satan himself, he's going to go out and he's going to do what he's been planning for a long time. And later that night, we'll see, when you get to the end of chapter 17, after the, the meal events, 
Jesus and the disciples go out to the Garden of uh, Olives, and that's where Judas betrays him with a kiss. He's betrayed by a friend. Uh, so, what we have so far in chapter 13 is that Jesus is, says, I have been prepared for death because Mary has anointed my feet and wiped my feet dry. Now I'm preparing you to face persecution and death as well by doing this for you, but there's one who's accepted. That's Judas Iscariot. He's going to look out for number one, and he's going to betray me. So next week we're going to pick up at verse 31, where Jesus then starts speaking only to the 11. And he has special instructions for the remaining 11. And the first instruction is that you need to love one another, which is doing what is self-sacrificial for other people. That's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, I thank you for a passage here that speaks to us. Help us to realize, Lord, that we're commissioned to be witnesses for you at work, at school, in our community, wherever we are, in our clubs. Help us to realize, Lord, that not everyone's going to receive that message, but those who do, like Dee, not only receive your messenger, but receive you, and thus receive the Father and eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for these positive outcomes that we'll experience occasionally, but we also need to be prepared for the worst. We thank you, Lord, that we have been faithful so far. Help us to be faithful to the end. Help us not to fall away, become a fool of Satan like, like Judas. Help us always to examine ourselves, ask ourselves how we're helping other believers cope Help us to be a blessing to others. Help us, Lord, to be an encourager and uh, uplift each person as we go through this Christian journey. In Christ's name, amen.